So we're working our way through the book of Ruth. Um, if you've not been here for the last couple of weeks, just a very brief um, summary, really. Ruth chapter one uh, is all about uh, despair and death. The family find themselves in a very difficult situation, having moved from home, gone to Moab, things haven't worked out. And then uh, in chapter two, we find that Ruth then uh, and Naomi come back to Bethlehem. And then what we find in chapter two, we spoke a lot about divine providence. There's a lovely text there where it says, it just so happened. And, and that sense that God was at work, and actually God isn't mentioned very much in this story, but God was still at work, what we call divine providence. And I spoke to you about a book I'm reading at the moment about the church in the West and the decline of the church in the West, and how often uh, we can have this uh, Western secular mindset of what's called a fully imminent frame, whereby there's no room, there's no space for God. God is not involved in any kind of way within our world. But actually how we're called out of that, not just to, have, uh, to be present in the moment, but also uh, to, to understand the transcendence of God, that God is over and above all, and that God is at work within our world, which is why I uh, just asked Sue to share that, um, those stories with us. Uh, and today we come to Ruth chapter 3. And um, you may have heard it before, this might be the first time, but I do sense there's quite a lot of ambiguity in Ruth chapter 3. So shall we pray as we come to look at this text together? So Father, we thank you for the written word, and we thank you for this story written hundreds of years ago. Uh, and we pray that as we look at your written word, we might be drawn to Jesus, the one who is the living word. And we ask that in his name. Amen. Um, we went to, I took a wedding yesterday, first wedding I've taken outside of a church building. And if you looked at the weather, it was all a bit touch and go. Thankfully, we had kind of marquees and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it, it was a lovely occasion. And it got me thinking about weddings and getting engaged and all that kind of stuff. Not that I want to get engaged because I'm already married. But, but my, my observation is, though, is that engagement proposals nowadays have become quite grand and at times, dare I say it, quite ostentatious events. Not so in my day. Um, I still remember the day that Anna and I got engaged in August 1990. Um, I was visiting Anna at her parents' home in Bath, that's where they lived, and we, I went there for the weekend and mum and dad uh, had gone out for the weekend. Do you remember George? They're here now, but he has no, no recollection. Um, uh, her mum and dad had gone out for a wedding for the day, and Anna had been left at home, a bit like Cinderella, doing all the household chores. And, uh, and, and at that moment, uh, I remember she was hanging out the washing. And, and I remember thinking, I'd quite like to marry Anna. Not, not because she was hanging out the washing, um, <laughs> but because I was, and I still am, madly and deeply in love with her. And anyway, she was hanging out the family underwear. I remember that bit. And uh, I casually walked over to her. I leaned up against the washing line pole, and, and I pulled out an empty ring box that I just so happened to be carrying in my pocket. And, and I said to her, do you want to get something to go in this box? She said, yes. I'm assuming that she thought I was talking about marriage and not something else. Like, but, but she said yes, and, and that was it. That was the beginning of the journey of a lifetime. And uh, we then spent that day wandering around the city of Bath 
uh, with a very small budget, because I was a, a poor student in that time, looking for a ring. And eventually, we found the ring in an antique shop. Now, um, I think it's fair to say that Anna's never really liked the ring that I bought her. Um, and uh, she said to me just now, she said, well, I, I kind of liked it, given that it was within our budget. But that was about it, really. <laughs> Uh, and and it's often she will um, look at other people's engagement rings and think, I'd quite like that one, because she's not happy with the one I got. Now, funnily enough, tonight we're finishing a series on the Ten Commandments, and Anna's preaching, and she's preaching about do not cover. Um, <laughs> but I still don't think she solved that one when it comes to engagement rings. Anyway, later that day, having secured a yes and a ring, Anna's mum and dad came home, and uh, this, was, this was in the days of phones and letters, so you couldn't like instantly tell the world everything that had gone on. But we wanted to tell them first that we got engaged. However, Jill, Anna's mum, it's fair to say, Jill, that back in the day, you could talk quite a lot. Um, like, talk the hind legs off a donkey. Um, that was back then, um, and, and so, Anna, Anna's mum was chatting about the day, and eventually she came up for breath. And um, <clears throat> I rudely interrupted her, and I said, Jill, can you just be quiet for a moment? And then I uh, turned to George in my best Bromley accent, and I've been improved on since then. I said, George, I want to marry your daughter. And, uh, and he said yes, and that was our grand engagement. Very simple, isn't it? Um, this chapter in this book of Ruth is all about an engagement proposal. Uh, and interestingly, though, it's the women who take the initiative, which is actually, uh, even in this day and age, a break with tradition. Often it's still left for the man to ask the question. Certainly the case then. But actually, in this text here, we find that it's the woman who takes the initiative. Naomi, um, who has whose name means lovely and pleasant, and then she comes back uh, from Moab, and she says, don't call me lovely and pleasant, don't call me Naomi, my name is Mara, because I'm bitter. Naomi, we find, is slowly moving out of a bitter place into a better place. As, she, as we looked in the chapter last week, she begins to see the hand of God at work in her circumstances. You know, that just so happened that Ruth ended up in the field of Boaz, who is their kinsman, Redeemer. And basically what Ruth, uh, Naomi, then says to Ruth, this Moabite, is that what she wants her to do is to cozy up to this man, Boaz. Now, Boaz uh, is a wealthy man, he's a landowner, and, and he and his people have been out in, in the fields and they're in the middle of the harvest for the barley. Uh, and basically, uh, Naomi knew that, that Boaz wasn't going to come back to the city. They call it a city or a town. It's probably just a, a small village. That he wasn't going to come back, but that he would be out there overnight, basically like a security guard, keeping an eye on the barley that they'd harvested. Um, and so basically, Naomi speaks to Ruth. And she says to her uh, in verse 3, and in some ways, to, to summarize, she basically says to her, it seems, go and seduce Boaz. She says, have a bath, put on some makeup, and put on your best clothes. And when Boaz is asleep, uncover his feet and lie down next to him. And this is where 
this text is all a bit ambiguous, I think, because um, the words and phrases that are used here in this text seem to imply a whole variety of meanings. There are some biblical commentators who would say that uncovering someone's feet and lying down next to them is basically a euphemism for go and have sex with them. Now, I think that whatever Naomi suggests to Ruth, it is obviously a bit unusual. But I think what we already know from these three characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, is that they're all quite honourable. So I'm not convinced by that argument of what that might mean. Uh, I think, you know, a bit later on in verse 11, you know, Ruth is described as a woman of noble character. So whilst our commentators think that that might be what is being said here, I'm not convinced it's the case. But there is, though, a case here for the women, Naomi and Ruth, taking the initiative and going against tradition by Ruth making it clear to Boaz uh, when he discovers her lying at his feet that basically she wants to marry him. This is the engagement proposal. And it says in verse 8 um, <coughs> that Boaz, uh, when he discovers Ruth, lying at his feet, he is quite startled. Now, I had a similar experience to this um, recently when I was asleep. I woke up with quite a start because I could feel someone's breath on my face. It was about three in the morning, and I thought maybe Anna um, wanted to give me a kiss in the middle of the night, which is quite unusual. But it, it... it wasn't Anna. It was actually someone's dog that, that we were looking after for the weekend. The dog had been put in, the, in a room downstairs and had managed to get out. And some of you will know about this dog. I think it normally sleeps on the owner's bed. And, and the dog came up to our bed, three in the morning, jumped on the bed and was basically licking my face. Um, it was not a pleasant experience. Anyway, back to Ruth and Boaz. So um, in verse 9, and there's this lovely phrase, um, Ruth says to Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over me. And it could be taken literally, but it's, it's a metaphor. Basically, uh, you know, is let's get married. I want to be with you, Boaz. So it sounds a bit like Boaz in chapter 2, verse 12, you may remember where he says um, to Ruth, may you dwell under the wings of the Lord." in who you take refuge. And so what we find is Ruth, this Moabite, who has given herself uh, to Naomi, and to Naomi's God, is that that Ruth has found protection under the wings of the Lord. And now she is asking Boaz to protect her. Spread the corner of your garment over me. And um, this context is a world that is hostile to someone like Ruth. She's foreign, she's a Moabite, she's poor, she's a widow. And and Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. She is appealing to Boaz to to take on that role of guardian redeemer, kinsman redeemer, and to protect her, and with that, Naomi. And, And Boaz, I think, is delighted He's flattered. In verse 10, he says, May the Lord bless you. Your kindness, Ruth, is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, but basically what he's saying is, you've come after me. 
And, and what we find now, though, uh, like in any good love story, is that there is actually quite a threat to Ruth and Boaz actually getting together and living happily ever after. It, it turns out that in this very patriarchal society that there's actually another guardian redeemer who is closer by blood to Naomi. And that in that circumstance, actually, that other chap who we're going to come on to has the kind of first moral and social obligation to take on Naomi and Ruth before Boaz. But if this other chap doesn't want to fulfill his obligation, then the way is open for Ruth and Boaz to get married. But you will have to wait until next week to find out what happens. Does Ruth get her man? Come back for more. Um, I'd just like to um, though talk about um, a key word that is in this chapter that I think helps us to understand more about Ruth and more about God. And uh, it's one word that is used to describe Ruth in chapter 3, verse 10. Um, I've already quoted it. Basically, Boaz speaks to Ruth and, and he talks about Ruth's kindness towards him. But our English word kindness, I, I don't think, does justice to the Hebrew word, which is the word chesed. I'm going to say it a lot, but that's the only time I'm going to do it with that guttural sound. Chesed. And uh, the word hesed, a better translation of that word, is the word loyal love, loving kindness. And, and you find the word hesed used time and time again in the Old Testament. <coughs> you get to the New Testament, to the Greek, uh, the equivalent, I would think, is, is the word agape. There's lots of similarities. And we know what agape love looks like uh, if you look at Paul's beautiful poem in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, The Four Loves, uh, he talks about the four kind of Greek loves, and he, he uses uh, agape to describe what he believes is the highest level of love known to humanity. And agape love, like chesed, is a selfless love. It's a love that is passionately committed to the well-being and the flourishing of the other, whoever that other might be. You know, chesed and agape, this loyal love, uh, shows uh, to another person in word and in deed, not because the other person deserves it, but because of the character, the heart of the one who shows it. You know, chesed love is when we very clearly seek to love the unlovable. And, and Ruth is described in this story, and that, that word hesed comes up a few times in the text, is, is described in this story as demonstrating hesed towards Boaz and also towards Naomi. She, she expresses this loyal love we find in the first couple of chapters towards Naomi. Um, in chapter 1, verse 16, and it's, it's a lovely verse, uh, where, where Naomi says to Ruth, you know, you can go home. You know, your, your husband, my son, has died my husband has died, you can go back to your own family. But Ruth turns around and says this to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. It's a lovely commitment that Ruth makes to Naomi. And, and you might think that Naomi would be incredibly encouraged by Ruth's 
wholehearted commitment to her, the kindness that she shows to her. But kind of reading between the lines, it's almost as if Naomi's a bit kind of indifferent to what Ruth says to her in that text. You know, kind of like, oh, well, whatever. You know, and then Ruth, uh, with Naomi, Ruth leaves her country and her people, and she makes, herself, makes her way to a foreign country with Naomi as a sign of her hesed, her commitment, and her love. And when Naomi and Ruth get to Bethlehem, I think this next bit is quite untelling, quite telling. Naomi uh, has this very unwelcoming welcome party uh, that comes out to greet her or maybe to gloat at her. And even though Ruth is stood by her side, Naomi in chapter 1 verse 21 says this, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Ruth is stood by her side. Her incredibly committed daughter-in-law is stood right next to her. And I think that when she says, I've come back empty, it's a bit of a slap in the face for Ruth. Yet, yet despite what we find with this unusual attitude from Naomi that she has towards Ruth, which in some ways is a bit kind of indifferent, Ruth is the one who takes the initiative to get them food. In chapter 2, we talked about how Ruth goes out to glean in the field. Ruth's hesed, her loyal love, I think is quite remarkable. She demonstrates a very deep and personal care towards, at this time, the rather bitter and grumpy Naomi. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I'm bitter because of all of the Lord has brought to me. You know, if I were Ruth, if I were in Ruth's shoes, I don't think... I would have been so gracious and generous to Naomi. And sometimes, and this is a confession of a pastor, and it's never happened in Guernsey, only in other places I've served. Um, but if I see someone who's a bit like a Naomi, woe is me, life is awful, grumpy and self-absorbed, I might be tempted to go the other way. There's been times, actually, when we've been in supermarkets, and, uh, and I said to Anna, not that aisle, this one. <coughs> because my hesed, my loyal love that is committed to the well-being and flourishing of the other, whoever that other person might be, at times, I'll be honest with you, is a bit weak and feeble. It's found wanting, but not so with Ruth. Last week I spoke <coughs> about Boaz kind of being like a foreshadow of the Messiah, that what we see in Boaz as a guardian redeemer, uh, we see in the heart of God. And I think in a similar way, what we see here in Ruth, this Moabite, this poor foreign widow, what we see in Ruth and her hesed, her loving kindness, her loyal love, I think is a reflection of what we see in the heart of God. As I said, that hesed can be translated in a number of ways. Loyal love, loving kindness, unfailing love. It's used over 250 times in the Old Testament, often used in the Psalms, and it's often used to describe the character and the action of God. Chesed love is who God is. At the end of Psalm 23, it says, Surely your goodness and your chesed, your loving kindness, will follow me all the days of my life. Hear this, God is passionately committed to you. And, and this loving kindness is not dependent upon our worthiness by the things that we may have done or not done. 
You know, we can't chalk it up as it were, but it comes from God's heart as self-giving love towards us. You know, at times, I can be a bit like Naomi was to Ruth when it comes to my relationship with God. I can be bitter and grumpy when things haven't worked out my way. I can be undeserving of his loyal love. I don't live in the way that he calls me to live. You know, Hosea, uh, the prophet, and again, a whole interesting story there about the fact that he's told by God to marry a prostitute, a promiscuous woman, and this woman represents the people of God because she's just not faithful, yet God is committed. Hosea says in chapter 6 about the people of God, and it, it rings true with me, your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears quickly. And my love for God, I say this to you amongst friends, can be flaky. And I think we see this hesed, this agape love, most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death upon the cross, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5. But God demonstrates his love for us. He can't but help himself in that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. So, to close, as we think about chapter 3, may we, as a church, demonstrate hesed love towards others. Maybe in your family, maybe in the church, maybe in your workplace, your school, wherever you find yourself this week. May we demonstrate love at times to the unlovely, May we demonstrate hesed love even to those who are undeserving of it. And, and may we, who I think at times can be grumpy, bitter, indifferent, flaky towards God, undeserving of his loyal love, may we, and, and if you've been in this Christian discipleship thing for some time, may we experience afresh that beautiful hesed love that he has for us. His loving kindness, his generosity, and his commitment towards us, even though we don't deserve it. Shall we stand? I'd love to pray for us. <clears throat> so, Father, we thank you for um, this story. We thank you that what we see in Ruth is a reflection of who you are. And we pray uh, that by your spirit, you might help us to demonstrate hesed love towards others. It may well be that someone comes to mind, someone, a work colleague, a member of a family, whatever it might be, who actually we'd rather walk away from than walk towards. Well, we pray that you might give us love for them so that we might love them in a very clear and godly way. And, and Father, we pray, particularly, uh, we pray for those who maybe feel as though the fire for the Lord Jesus has gone out, that you might come and refresh our love for you because of your love for us. Father, we ask that you might be at work and, and help us to be a people that in a world that can be so cutthroat and difficult at times that we would be those who are like Ruth, who reflect you.
And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.